thinking about the unthinkable. That's how Herman Kahn described talking about nuclear war. But three weeks into the fighting in Ukraine, we have to confront the fact that Russian doctrine calls for the use of nuclear weapons on the battlefield under certain circumstances. Let's get into the details of that. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. Delighted to be joined today by Matthew Cronut. He's professor in the Department of Government uh, in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, also director of studies at the Atlantic Council. Matt, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for the invitation, Aaron. It's great to chat with you. So the subject of the day uh, unsurprisingly, is, is Ukraine. And you are a specialist in nuclear weapons, strategic questions pertaining to nuclear weapons. So we'll, we'll explore that dimension in particular. But before we get to that, I just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, we've had guests on the program in the last few weeks who are divided in their views of how this war is likely to shake out in sort of in conventional terms. Will this be a conventional, setting aside, you know, grand strategic outcomes for a moment, will this be, will the Russians accomplish their conventional military goals or or, or not? And and there's sort of a spectrum of opinion. Where do you, where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, um, I I think you're right that there are a number of ways this could play out. It it could be a decisive Russian military victory. Uh, It could be a decisive Ukrainian and Western military victory where Russian forces are, are completely expelled from Ukraine. I think my my best guess right now is it will result in some kind of negotiated settlement uh, that Russia will succeed in taking parts of, of the country, uh, but not the entire country. And then um, Moscow and Kiev will work out some kind of of arrangement. So not my not my preferred outcome, but uh, if I were betting, that would be uh, where I'd place my bets. And so that that sounds like on the spectrum, probably closer to what the Russians had hoped for from the start, if perhaps at a at a higher cost and on a longer timeline than they had been anticipating. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Although it's hard to know what Putin was thinking um, at the beginning. It's certainly similar to his demands at the beginning, but uh, is, is that really all that he wanted or, or did he hope that he was going to be able to take take the entire country? Um, yeah. you know, we just don't know. So let's, so, so let's talk about the nuclear dimension at play here. And I, I, I'm, I mentioned to a guest last week that you know, if you'd asked me in March of 2021, what the chance was of a uh, of a nuclear weapon being released on the European subcontinent in the coming year, I would have said, you know, zero or effectively zero, so negligible as to be zero. And of course, sitting here in March of, of 2022, the answer to that question is not nearly as clear cut. The answer seems, to the extent that anything's clear, the answer is not zero. I'm curious to know your view of what you think, what you think the odds are. It's kind of an impossible question, but maybe on our way there, you could you could talk to us a bit about the nuclear alert that Putin sort of ostentatiously announced in the early stages of this conflict. Was that something unanticipated or extremely alarming or unusual? Is that from the perspective of someone who follows these things closely as you do, something to be expected? So what what actually happened there and how does it fit into the broader context of, of Russian thinking about nuclear weapons? Yes, well, I think you're right that many people uh, were surprised, but but I, I, to be honest, I was not, and um, I was I was predicting in the fall as this was heating up that it would become a nuclear crisis, 
soon because this is what Putin does. This is the the Russian strategy. It's uh, sometimes been referred to as escalate to de-escalate, but but essentially the idea is to threaten nuclear war uh, early in a in a conflict, hoping that the other side will back down, um, and and if necessary, as the conflict continues, actually employing uh, nuclear weapons. N- not a full scale nuclear attack, but uh, one or two or three try to convince the rest of the world, uh, make them think, oh, oh my God, what are we doing? Uh, is this really worth a nuclear war? Maybe it's time to to back down. So yeah, I, I, I can go into a lot more detail. I've thought about this a lot for seven years, but I uh, was not surprised. Yeah, I, I, alarmingly, I, I will point out to our listeners that Matt is smiling as he uh, as he conveys this uh, conveys this news. I think maybe, maybe out of a sense of how surprising it is probably to people who haven't followed all this closely, but um, maybe because uh, it makes not, me a little, little uncomfortable as, as yeah. well. But. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start with the second half of what you said, because I think it's probably the most obviously alarming part, not that the, the threat, right, would be part of Russian doctrine, but the actual expectation of, of use. So how, how in Russian doctrine does that play out? When, what kinds of weapons do you use and what circumstances do you use them? Let's speak theoretically for, for a moment. Yeah, well, you know, so they have a large stockpile of, of tactical nuclear weapons, 2,000 or, or so tactical um, nuclear weapons. You know, we only have about 200 in the United States, 200 gravity bombs. But, but essentially any weapon you can imagine, Russia puts a, a nuke on. So they have nuclear torpedoes, nuclear depth charges, nuclear naval and landmines, um, nuclear surface-to-air missiles to go after airplanes, nuclear-armed missile defense interceptors to go after incoming missiles, nuclear short-range short, short uh, range ground launch missiles, intermediate-ranged uh, air launch. Uh, so they have a wide variety of weapons to choose from, and, and many of them are low-yield. You know, so Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. Russia has some sub-kiloton weapons. Mm. So you, know, you could imagine in, in the war in Ukraine, Russia using a uh, low-yield nuclear weapon against the airport in Kiev or tanks on the battlefield or, or against an airplane. And so the limited damage, you know, would would have an effect, of course, on the battlefield. But you know, uh, it's not nuclear holocaust. But I think the message received in the West would be, you know, oh my God, Putin's just used a nuclear weapon. There's a mushroom cloud. There's radiation. You know, this is really escalating fast. What are we doing? We need to search for off ramps, and and that's really uh, the goal of the of the strategy. Secretary of Defense Mattis uh, referred to it as trying to force us into a position of suicide or surrender. Uh, you know, so either we get into a nuclear war with Putin that leads to our uh, own you know, suicide or, or we surrender and give him what he wants. So it's a, a clever and diabolical strategy in that way. Doesn't it raises sort of, I'm just thinking this through in, in real time as you explain this to me, doesn't it raise the following question for, for the Russians before they embark on this course of action? Which, you know, how, how big of a bomb do you need to actually generate that kind of panic? The fear of, of out of control escalation, that, as you describe it, is the goal of the, or one of the main goals of the exercise, you know, because, you know, you talk about these sub kiloton weapons, if the damage really is so slight as to be, you know, tantamount to a very, very large conventional weapon, do you achieve that effect on the West? And, and if not, you know, do you need to use something bigger? How? How, do you do you think they're thinking through a problem like that? How do you think about that? Well, well, I'll, I'll give you my answer. I'd be interested in your view too, because I know you have um, uh, some background in journalism. But but my sense is that any yield nuclear weapon, the, the way it would be reported in the West, the reaction would be, you know, 
oh my God, the first nuclear weapon used in, uh, since uh, World War II, uh, you know, probably images of the mushroom cloud, you know, images of people going to the hospital with radiation poisoning. I, I don't know. I, th I think there would be even just one small yield nuclear weapon. There would be a lot of panic. But, it, but if there wasn't, you know, they could use a second or a third larger, larger yield weapon. I, I think they have a lot of limited options, you know, between nothing and, and full-scale nuclear war. And do you think that the effect that you described them as wanting to achieve, that, that they would achieve that? You know, how do you think that NATO in general, this administration specifically, is, is likely to respond to it, given, given the fact that, you know, presumably there are folks like yourself advising them that this is a very realistic outcome or possibility in the coming weeks? Yeah, so after this happened, after the Ukraine invasion in 2014, and, and, and people kind of missed this, but the Ukraine invasion in 2014 was also a nuclear crisis. Putin at the time said, um, Russia is a major nuclear power. It's best not to mess with us. Um, he didn't put nuclear weapons on alert in that crisis, but he later threatened that he, he thought about it or bragged um, that he thought about it. Uh, and so after that episode, uh, people like me began thinking, you know, okay, okay, what happens if, if he does this against a NATO ally? How would we uh, handle it? And, and including following through with nuclear use. And so to get around this suicide and surrender problem that I mentioned, the uh, Trump NPR, the 2018 NPR, essentially said, you know, it's bureaucratic language, but essentially said, okay, Putin, you know, we see you, uh, we're not going to get forced into this suicide or surrender problem. You use one or two nuclear weapons, we're going to use one, two or, or three right back at you. Uh, and so if you thought you use one nuclear weapon and you win, uh, you're actually incorrect. You know, you just get into a limited nuclear war with NATO. Is that really what you want? So don't go down this path in the first place. And the Trump NPR said, to, this isn't just cheap talk. To make this credible, we're building two new low-yield nuclear weapons precisely for this problem. Uh, so you might remember the controversy over Trump's low-yield nuclear weapons four or five years ago. But th this is the problem they were designed to solve. So long-winded way of, of saying, if this happened against a NATO ally, I, I think we know what the strategy is. What make this, makes this so confusing is it's, it's not a NATO um, ally. And Biden has explicitly said that military options are off the table. Military options are off the table. And he does seem, the White House does seem very concerned about avoiding escalation. So it's hard for me to imagine them deciding to get involved militarily after a nuclear weapon. Um, is used. So, so my best guess is, is they continue a version of the same strategy that they say, okay, more sanctions, more diplomatic protests, more arms to the Ukrainians, but that even a nuclear weapon being used wouldn't be enough for the Biden White House to, to get involved militarily. Sticking for a moment with the, at, the, at this point in time, March the 16th, a uh, slightly more theoretical scenario of a, of a tactical nuclear strike on a NATO ally. Everything you just described in terms of the, the way that the Trump administration set up a possible response to that that was proportionate and, and, and sort of got us out of this, you know, dilemma that you were describing. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so straightforward, very sensible stuff. As you, as you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it. And, and yet, I think we owe it to our listeners to point out that this is widely criticized and extraordinarily controversial. What was at the time is now. What, what, considering how reasonable it sounded when you explained it, what could possibly be the complaints? Well, well the major uh, concern that people would have is, okay, he uses a nuclear weapon. We use one or two. He uses four. We use seven. He uses 14. What, where does it stop? We're just on this uh, pathway to, to general nuclear war. And so it's better not to get on that path um, in the first place. 
The, the problem, though, with that is then, you know, essentially you're telling Putin, threaten nuclear war or, or use a nuclear weapon and you can do whatever you want. But, you know, we're not going to uh, we're, we're going to back down. And, you know, today it's Kiev, tomorrow it's Warsaw. And so I do think you need a tough response. So, so my best guess, e even if it's a NATO ally, is that the instinct of a lot of the people in the administration would be to say, well, let's not retaliate with nuclear. So let's say he uses a nuclear weapon against uh, Warsaw. Or, or the U.S. airbase in Poznan, Poland. I think many in the administration would, would say, well, we need to defend our NATO allies. So this is an act of war. We'll you know, defend every inch of NATO territory, as Biden said, but we'll do it with conventional weapons only. We're going to maintain the moral high ground. And just because he used nuclear weapons, we don't need to sink to his level. We're not going to do the same thing. But then what if he uses a second, third, fourth, you know, these can have devastating battlefield yeah. um, effects. So I, I think that's not uh, the best strategy, but I, I'm guessing that's what their instincts would be. This notion, so when we talk about, you know, battlefield effects of nuclear weapons, I think we're entering into terrain that a lot of people in the West just haven't thought about for, for a very long time. You know, when we, we think about nuclear, what's the expression? We're thinking about the unthinkable. When we think about nuclear war and in fact um you know the conversation that we've been having for the last 10 minutes it sounds quite thinkable horrible to be sure extraordinarily dangerous obviously for the people in the area but in the much broader sense of this could escalate actually to something that is more or less unthinkable but my understanding is that's you know a development a, a change in thinking in america about nuclear weapons that that only sort of set in quite a few decades into the possession of nuclear weapons that for the early history of the cold war thinking about how to use nuclear weapons as a part of a battlefield strategy was, was, was commonplace. Am I, am I, am I correct in that? How did, how did that thinking actually work? Yeah. So er, early in the nuclear era, actually, um, Eisenhower speaking at a, a press conference about one, one of the conflicts in Korea or in Asia, I can't remember if it was Korea or, or Taiwan, was asked about the use of nuclear weapons. And he said, sure, we'll use nuclear weapons like a bullet or anything else. So I think that was the first, you know, kind of thinking about these weapons, you know, these are just, you know, big artillery shells. And then over time, you did have the rise of this, um, you know, kind of anti-nuclear movement, the idea of a nuclear taboo. Although if you look at um, NATO defense strategy, r really till the end of the Cold War, you know, we, we did have battlefield nuclear weapons in Europe and the Russians had conventional military superiority. So really, until the end of the Cold War, our military strategy was to use nuclear weapons uh, first or threaten to use nuclear weapons first to offset Russia's conventional superiority. This is uh, one of the reasons the United States never went to a so-called no first use uh, policy. You know, some countries uh, say they, they wouldn't use nuclear weapons first. Uh, we would only use them in retaliation. The United States during the Cold War said, no, we, we have to use these first or we can't defend um, Europe. You know, so the, so the thinking never really changed in, in Russia. And, and so I think that's important to understand. We see these as taboo weapons. It's unthinkable. I don't think Putin and the Russians see them that way. You know, so major Russian military exercises end with simulated nuclear strikes. You know, Putin appears, gives his State of the Union address and, and brags about the new nuclear weapons they're building, actually shows at a State of the Union address a couple of years ago, showed a, a nuclear, a new nuclear a missile striking Mar-a-Lago, Florida. You know, unimaginable that Biden would, in a State of the Union address, like have simulated nuclear strikes on a big screen uh, behind him. But yeah. But that's how the, the Russians think about it. And I, I think they see this as an advantage. You know, they're willing to use these weapons and, and we're not. And so, you know, let's let's fight where they have one one hand tied behind their back. Matt, help us understand battlefield nuclear tactics. 
both as a, as a historical matter, you know, in terms of the way that it seems in the past, we used to think about things, but also as a present day consideration in terms of how Russians might employ them in Ukraine, because you know, on one level, speaking as a, as a former infantryman, you know, when you, when you're using conventional fires, even very large conventional fires, you can use them in very close coordination with maneuver and you can maneuver right onto the spot where you're firing. For obvious reasons, that seems to get a little bit more complicated when you're using nukes. But just just help us help us understand how um, how one thinks, whether it's the Russians or more generally, one thinks about using nukes as part of the battle plan. Yeah. So, well, the first thing I'll, I'll say is, you know, for Russia, I think the primary um, purpose of this escalate to deescalate strategy is is not to win the battle. It is really more the psychological um, effect. You know, escalate to de-escalate, so escalate the risk of nuclear war, make the West afraid so that then the West de-escalates on terms favorable to Moscow. But, you know, they have more than symbolic effects. Uh, they can have devastating battlefield effects. So, so one of the advantages, one of the reasons that Russia relies on them so much is uh, because you don't have to be that accurate if you're using a nuke, you know, for an air defense system, a missile defense system. You know, we essentially have hit to kill technology. You need a direct uh, hit. Uh, if you're using a nuke, you just have to kind of be close. If you're, if you're, you know, uh, dealing with infantry or tanks, you know, one, one nuclear weapon, you know, clears the field rather than, you know, a, a bunch of conventional munitions. Uh, same thing, a naval battle, you know, uh, one nuclear weapon, you know, wipes the sea clean of the opponent's naval force. So yeah, you, you don't need the accuracy and, and you get, you know, a big, um, a big yield that can really devastate uh, your opponent's military. And do you, I mean, in the case of chemical weapons, you could then sort of don your protective gear and maneuver into the space where you've been using them. Do you, do Russian infantry or, or ground maneuver units, do you, are, are they then avoiding the areas where they've struck because of the radiation? That's a good question. Um, there is this so-called countering WMD uh, concept about how you would kind of fight through an, an area where uh, WMD have been um, used, but I, I I don't know how the Russians think about that. To be honest, you know, yeah. maybe they're just not too concerned about whether, whether <laughs> their soldiers die with radiation poisoning, or maybe they they'd avoid the the area for a while. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I saw Chernobyl, the uh, the HBO <laughs> miniseries that documented the uh, the general attitude towards junior Russian personnel. So I, I take your I take your point. Not to mention what we're all seeing in Ukraine right now. The, re the reason I keep sort of pursuing this line of questioning, though, I I take your point that the primary use of the weapons, even the smaller weapons is uh, sort of still strategic, even if they are themselves, you know, strictly speaking, tactical. It's because, you know, the Russians face real military problems that, I mean, they cer it certainly surprised me. It seems to have surprised most people, except maybe the Ukrainians who were always, who knows, maybe they were this confident that they could gum up the works all along. But certainly here in Washington, most of us were surprised. And so I just keep, I, I, I'm sort of compelled to think about, well, gosh, you know, a month from now, two months from now, three months from now, Putin is still sitting on the perimeter of Kiev, you know, maybe progress in the South is ground to a halt. You know, this is a pessimistic, from his point of view, prediction of how things will go. But you could imagine a point where the, the cost and resources to even maintain a stalemate is so high that you start thinking about battlefield use for battlefield purposes. And they have these strategic effects as well. You know, did it, I got I, I, I got asked since we're <laughs> this deeply grim subject matter. What about chemical weapons? What is the Russian thinking in, in terms of employment there? Because those also have battlefield effects and there are these international norms, not to say international you know, prescriptions of international law regarding them, but they, they have their purposes when properly employed. How do the Russians think about that? 
Yeah, I, th- I think the risk of a chemical use by Russia is uh, probably even higher mm. uh, th- than nuclear use. You know, we, we saw Putin back Assad as Assad gassed his own people in Syria. And then we've heard the Russians in recent days um, essentially coming up with pre- what sound to me like pretexts for Russian uh, chemical or biological use. You know, accusing the Ukrainians of developing chemical weapons in consultation with the United States. So it sounds to me like preparations for a false flag attack. Use a chemical weapon, say it was the Ukrainians were going to retaliate, uh, and then use chemical weapons back. And, and while chemical weapons, you know, in World War I, they, they weren't that effective um, on the battlefield. But we have seen with, with Saddam Hussein's use against his own people in Iraq, Assad's use in, in Syria, If really what you're looking to do is, you know, kill and and terrorize a civilian population, especially in dense urban areas, uh, they can be effective for that. So given the change in Russian strategy in over the past week or 10 days or so, you know, seeming to to purposely target innocent civilians, you could see why that might be attractive as well. Yeah. Preemptive counterinsurgency warfare. Yes. So, um, Back to American policy questions for for a moment. So you mentioned the Trump administration's movement in the direction of developing and and deploying American tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, You gave us a long list of items that the Russians have. For some reason, I just can't help myself. I find the notion of a nuclear landmine to be like somewhat comical. It's not. There's no reason for it to be, but I just, I kind of can't help but chuckle at the the notion. It reminds me of the um, the very large IED we discovered in Helmand province uh, in, in 2010, that was 20 pieces of military ordnance daisy chain together, but it was a pool cord detonator that went wow. onto the roof of a one-story building about 20 meters from the you know alley, essentially, where the thing was about to be cooked off. Unsurprisingly, we found it undetonated um, okay. because it's sort of one of these classic, like seemed like a good idea at the time when you're setting up ideas that, you know, the next morning when it's time came to pull the cord, no one really had the the will to do it. Any, anyway, I said, sorry. Said Sounds like a suicide mission. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And the, the, yeah. The, I, I guess the, uh, the guy who drew the short straw had second thoughts. So what is the mix? So you, you talked about the gravity bombs that we have. What, what is the mix of weapons that um, were under discussion for development, the Trump administration? Where do things, where, where does this issue sort of stand now? You know, has, has all movement on this front been reversed? Uh, good. Yeah. And, and I do want to come back to the issue of scenarios where Putin might use um, nuclear weapons because sure. I have some more thoughts on that. Sure. But, but on, on this, you know, so, so during the Cold War, the United States had, you know, non-strategic nuclear weapons as well, as I said, in Europe, but also in, in Korea. At, at the end of the Cold War, there was this presidential nuclear initiative, George H.W. Bush. And um, I think it was Yeltsin at the time uh, kind of agreed. It wasn't a formal treaty, but they said, you know, that, that was kind of stupid having all these you know, battlefield nuclear weapons, what were we thinking? Let's, let's get rid of this stuff. Uh, and the United States did, you know, the United States now only has, uh, you know, 200 or so uh, gravity bombs that could be, dr- you know, dropped from F- F-16, um, F-18, F-35 uh, fighter aircraft, lower yield. Russia did get rid of a lot, but it kept a lot and it's building more, as I mentioned before. So the, what the Trump administration called for was a low yield submarine launch ballistic missile. You know, so we already have nuclear-armed submarine-launched ballistic missiles. So essentially all they did was take uh, a weapon that already exists and uh, reduce uh, the yield. And, and those have already entered service, uh, so we have those. You know, it's possible Biden could decide to reverse that, uh, but it would be a little bit odd saying, um, no, I'm going to you know, take a weapon we already have and make its explosive yield you know, e- even larger. That doesn't really seem consistent with th- this pledge he's made to reduce reliance on nuclear weapons. 
The one that I think is uh, more at risk is, is the Trump administration called for a second low-yield nuclear weapon, a nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missile, uh, so a nuclear-armed tomahawk, basically. We had those during the Cold War. Uh, we got rid of them. The, the, it was finally retired in 2010 by Obama. Uh, so the idea was to build um, a new one. But this is, you know, it's going to take seven to 10 years to, to design and build a new weapon system. So it's in its infancy. And so I, I am afraid that Biden is going to decide to kill uh, that weapon. But, but a little bit, you know, puzzling uh, timing. It was a weapon designed to deter Putin from using uh, nuclear weapons at a time that he's invading other countries, making nuclear threats. You know, it seems like it would be bad timing to kill that weapon. But, but my prediction actually is that that is what we'll see. And could you just sort of put yourself in the shoes of someone defending that decision in the Biden administration? What's the what's the case they would make for killing it? Well, I, I think they have a, a dilemma, you know, because Biden has promised uh, that he's going to, quote, reduce reliance on nuclear weapons. And I think essentially he's speaking to to mostly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the kind of anti-nuclear you know, thinking that you've often had on, on, on that part of the left. But I think his defense department realizes we need um, these weapons. And so I think, you know, he's got that kind of internal uh, tug of war. So I think what, what he would say, somebody defending it would say is, well, we still have a robust, you know, nuclear arsenal. We're continuing plans to modernize, uh, you know, that started with Obama, continued with Trump. We're keeping the, the low yield gravity bombs. We're keeping the low yield submarine launch ballistic missiles. We've got, you know, that'll be enough. We're just killing this one system. And, and so, you know, we're, we're, we have a balanced approach. We're reducing reliance, even while we maintain a, a strong nuclear deterrent. Got it. Well, you mentioned you have more more to contribute on uh, scenarios in which the Russians might use nuclear weapons. I, 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 I'm all ears. Yeah. So, you know, outside experts debate, does Russia have this escalate to deescalate strategy or not? The U.S. government says that they do, as we've seen in recent weeks. They, they have pretty good insight into Russian defense planning, and, and so I agree with them. The outside experts who say they don't have the escalate to de-escalate strategy say, look at the formal doctrine. And the formal Russian doctrine says something like Russia would use nuclear weapons first if the um, existence of, of the state of Russia were under threat uh, or something like that. And so outside experts say, no, this means, you know, if we're driving, you know, onto downtown Moscow, he'd use nuclear weapons. Others, including senior Obama defense official, said, no, from Putin's, and you know, this is Putin, in, in his mindset, if he loses a war on his border, his, you know, regime could be at risk. In his mind, that's con the same thing as the existence of the state of Russia. And so this is a scenario that people thought about, you know, well, well before the current crisis, if, you know, he tries to invade Estonia and it goes poorly, you know, according to the doctrine, that's when you use nuclear weapons. So, so that's one of the scenarios I worry about. You know, if, if Ukrainians are doing well with Western support, they're actually pushing Russian forces out and, and Putin's looking at this embarrassing military defeat. I, I think he would use nuclear weapons before he would just accept defeat. Yeah. And, and you know, it, despite where we started, which is, you know, among the outcomes, you know, a very possible outcome is some level of conventional Russian success negotiated you know, partition of a sort on, on terms, you know, Finlandization of what's left, you know, it's possible. Also possible is this thing just keeps going and we end up in some sort of strange netherworld where we have an insurgency like conflict in some parts of the country, a conventional type conflict in other parts of the country. And in that kind of scenario, 
yeah, I mean, you can absolutely imagine the risks to Putin's rule as the costs continue to mount, as the financial pressures, sanctions, et cetera, continue to mount. And everything you were describing would seem somewhat rational if it offered Putin a way to, at the very least, cut off Western intervention in the fighting, you know, a, pl a play to shock the West into stopping what help they're providing the Ukrainians. Yes. And, and you mentioned the term rational. You know, that, that's one of the other debates we've had around this. Is Putin still rational uh, or not? Um, you know, was it rational to invade? Would it, would it be rational to use nuclear weapons? My read for what it's worth is, is that he is rational and you just put yourself in, in his shoes. And if your goal is to recreate the Russian empire, and, and if you look at his track record of using military force, you know, he used military force in Chechnya, basically worked, used it in Georgia, 2008 basically worked, used it in Ukraine in 2014, basically worked, Syria in 2015 basically worked. So I, I think he's saying, yeah, I want to go down as this great Russian leader. I want to retake Kiev. You know, uh, let's go to the tool that works. Uh, you know, I, I think this um, was a rational decision. And I think that using nuclear weapons in certain circumstances could be a rational uh, decision from his point of view for some of the reasons you've uh, mentioned. You know, because I've had people say, well, that would be, you know, irrational, doesn't mutually assure destruction still work. But, you know, for these limited use scenarios, if he can pop off a nuke and get the West to back down. That's, that's a rational move from his point of view. And we, we got into this a little bit, but do you, do you, in the Ukrainian scenario, that is to say, he, he releases a nuke against some target, you know, not on NATO territory in Ukraine, does the West back down? I, th I think we'd see this, this unity we've seen. I, th I think you would see that fragmented. I, I do think you'd have some in Europe saying, okay, this has gone too far. Let's let's sue for peace. I think you'd see some in the United States saying, saying this has gone too far. Uh, let's sue for peace. So, so who knows how Biden, uh, Macron, you know, uh, others would, would come down on this. M my best guess is, is that actually we'd continue doing what we're doing and, and maybe dial it up a little bit. So more arms to the Ukrainians, more sanctions, you know, UN Security Council meeting, maybe more reinforcements to the eastern flank of NATO. But I, I don't see us getting involved militarily. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if there's any unambiguous lesson from all of this, it's you referred to, to the United States and Russia downgrading their weapon stockpiles at the end of the Cold War. Of course, Ukraine famously, you know, in return for some, some guarantees, gave up all of its nuclear weapons. That seems to me to be the major take. Don't give up your nukes if you have them. Well, I think that is a lesson uh, that others may draw, but um, I actually think the Ukrainians made um, the right decision. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. For, uh, Please say more. Yeah, well, well, one, you know, they never really had control of the nuclear weapons. It was, you know, Soviet forces on Ukraine in, in possession. So the new Ukrainian government, you know, they didn't have command and control over the weapons. Un unclear if they could have even um, gotten control. Would, would they have had to physically um, attack the, you know, the Russian soldiers in possession of them? So, so unclear if they could have gotten them. Second, we have to remember the time period. You know, this is the unipolar moment. The United States was putting a lot of pressure on Ukraine to, to give up the weapons. W when they did, the West rewarded Ukraine with economic aid packages and, and other things. Uh, if they had made the other decision, uh, no, we're going to keep these, uh, I, I think Ukraine would have been treated as a rogue state for the past 25 years. It would have been like, you know, Iran or North Korea would have been uh, subject to sanctions, military threats. Um, so um, given, given that, um, I think they made the right decision. Um, also, I want to comment on the uh, security guarantees. Uh, so this was the Budapest Memorandum. Uh, this is one of the, the promises made to Ukraine. 
uh, that if they gave up their nuclear weapons, uh, they'd receive negative security assurances from the U.S., U.K., Russia, um, and maybe one or two others. And so some people have misinterpreted that as saying, oh, we you know, promised to protect Ukraine's security, and now we're not living up to that commitment. But there's a difference between a positive uh, security guarantee, like we have with our allies, we, we'll protect you, uh, and a negative security guarantee where we just say, you know, we, we don't pose a threat to you. Uh, so this was a negative security guarantee. And, and so the United States, the UK have lived up to that. We're not threatening Ukraine. It, it's the Russians who violated this. So one, one of the many violations of international law that Putin is uh, engaging in with this, with this conflict. Yeah. Just because you, you made reference to the country, I, I got to bring it up. But of course, you're sitting here Wednesday, March 16th. Some of my friends and colleagues expect the announcement of a, of a nuclear deal, renewed nuclear deal with Iran. Soon others are more skeptical. One way or the other, we do seem to find ourselves in this um, sort of bizarre situation where we are engaged in supplying Russia's enemies in Ukraine with the means to, to do battle against them and condemning their, their behavior, the Russian behavior there, rightly so while at the same time engaged in negotiations that intimately involve the Russians, that probably understates it, the Russians are more or less brokers of the deal we are trying to make with Iran to somehow keep Iran from getting nuclear weapons. So maybe you could talk about your impression of where things stand. I'm curious to know where you, where you come down kind of in the, in the prediction business here. And also how, <laughs> you can tell from the way I'm framing the question, how absurd I found it, but talk about this sort of situation we're in where on, on the one hand, we are vociferously opposed to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And on the other hand, apparently cooperating with them to achieve a goal. I'll just, I'll cut it off there before I leave the question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, well, maybe I'll start broad and go narrow. You know, I, I think broadly this shows that the, the, the Biden administration's global um, approach to foreign affairs hasn't gone as planned. You know, I, I do think they had this idea that they were going to come in and park the Russia relationship, we put it on a stable and predictable footing, as they called it, uh, park the Middle East by entering the Iran deal uh, quickly and easily, and then focus everything on China. And, you know, Putin and, and the Ayatollah had had different ideas. And so, you know, now they're the crisis they're dealing with are not in Asia, but but Europe and the Middle East. And, and I do think that may be causal, you know, the idea that we we didn't want to have to deal with these regions gave leaders in, in Moscow and Tehran an incentive to push uh, harder. So my best guess is, is that we still will, will re-enter the 25th the version of the nuclear deal. I, I think it's a mistake. I was a critic of the 2015 deal. But I think the Biden administration really wants it. You know, it's uh, one of the few things that Biden promised during the campaign. And, and you know, even as negotiators uh, leave, you know, he's, he's still uh, sticking uh, with this. And, and I think the Iranians uh, ultimately want it because I, th I think they're getting a pretty good deal. You know, they're getting limits on their nuclear program that expire in just a few years and, you know, additional sanctions relief in addition to, to what they got in 2015. So my guess is that we'll still get the deal. Final thing I guess I'll, I'll say on, on the absurd, absurdity of all of this, I, I do think the Biden administration and many others have this idea that we can, you know, confront Russia where that makes sense, cooperate where that makes sense. You know, same thing with China, kind of a dual track approach. And I think there are maybe times or adversaries where that did make sense. Increasingly, I'm not sure if that makes sense in, in the world that we're entering now. I mean, it does seem like Russia, China, um, Iran are, are cooperating more closely together. The, the areas of confrontation greatly outweigh, you know, the, the areas of possible cooperation. 
And so my, my thinking is we probably need to confront all three in, in the short term if we hope to have areas for more cooperative relations in the future. But I, I don't see how we dual track them really in the, in the current moment. Matt Kronig, uh, professor at Georgetown, director of studies at the Atlantic Council, author of um, a number of fascinating books, Return of Great Power Rivalry, The Logic of American Nuclear, Nuclear Strategy, author of frequent op-eds and pieces of commentary that I make a point to read every time they're published. Thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it. R really a pleasure, Aaron. It was a great, great discussion and look forward to, to chatting again soon. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.